This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Without having a really good reason for doing so, nobody in their right mind would put a dead fish into a Ziploc bag, attach it to wires and to an electrical stimulator, and release it into a tank with an electric eel. But thankfully, Kenneth Catania had a perfectly good reason for doing all of that. Or maybe he just wasn't in his right mind. Either way, the result was a revelation about the eel. Evidence that eels don't just use their capacity to stun preys with zaps of electricity to kill, but also to sense the world around them. Catania's new book is full of strange experiments and intriguing findings. It's called Great Adaptations, Star-Nosed Moles, Electric Eels, and Other Tales of Evolution's Mystery Solved. Catania is a professor of biological sciences at Vanderbilt University, and although he is the winner of a whole bunch of scientific awards, he also came to fame in no small part because he lets eels shock him, which brings us back to that question about being in one's right mind. King Catania, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. I want to start with these eels. You write in your book, that you're amazed by these animals because they perceive the world with senses that aren't just like heightened versions of the senses that we humans share, like smell or taste or or touch. They have this sensory ability, this evolutionary adaptation that we can't even really comprehend. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts about that animal. I mean, it's one thing to think about, you know, maybe an echolocating bat, because at least we can hear things. And so you can kind of imagine what that would be like. But sensing the world with electricity is totally foreign to us. And the eels are masters at doing that. And surprisingly, they may be better than the other electric fish that were already known to have this ability. Have you come up with a way, like a metaphor, an example, something that helps us get to this idea of what it must be like to sense the world with electricity? I mean, I've kind of thought of it as a cross between echolocation and a radar system and vision. You know, you have to use your imagination. You know, I would tell my students in class, well, there's a bunch of eels on another planet that are saying, well, how can they sense the world with vision, just vision? That seems so primitive and strange. But to them, you know, it works very well and it works as a distance sense. So they can detect things that are nearby them in the water in a way that's somewhat analogous to vision. You started down this road toward understanding animals that that sense the world in different ways than we do, very different ways than we do. You started this as a kid, which is when you were first exposed to the star-nosed mole. Yeah, that's when I got my start. I mean, at the time, I wasn't really thinking about the deep aspects of sort of sensing your environment and evolution and those things. I should say the way that happened was my parents got me a book called Animal Oddities. And I would flip through it with my brother and we would look at all the weird creatures, most of them from Africa or South America. But then there was this star-nosed mole. And I didn't really think about where it was from. I just thought it was an incredibly bizarre creature. And then within a couple of years, I found actually a dead one in the stream in my backyard. And that just got me amazed and kind of further hooked on biology because I realized these things are all around us. They're not just in far off countries. You'd seen this thing in a book. 
it looks bizarre. It looks like something alien. This book, by the way, by Maurice Burton. Have you gone back and like found an old copy of this? It's an amazing book. Absolutely. I've got it right behind me on my, my shelf. I had to, you know, we lost that copy that my parents gave me, but I had to buy a used one just because uh, it was such a fun memory. And then you're looking at this thing. It's a dead one, but you're looking at one. Do you remember what went through your head at the time? Yeah. I mean, at the time, you know, I was pretty young. I was probably nine or 10 years old. And so what I wondered was, could this be, you know, some sort of invasive species where it's a really special find where, you know, they're not supposed to be here. And of course, when I got out the field guide and started flipping around with my mother, I was like, okay, so they live kind of all over Maryland. And so, uh, you know, not a big deal in that sense, but a big deal to get to see such a strange animal at such an early age. And then you ultimately got your first interactions with star-nosed moles when you were an undergraduate working at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. What was that like? It was fantastic, really. You know, I, I would think anybody who is an aspiring biologist and you get a chance to work at the zoo, I mean, it was volunteering, really, but it was still a coveted position to be able to work with the animals and actually get involved in a research project. And that research project was focused on Starnos moles. And it was, the question was, of course, what's the tail for? No, not really. It was, it was, what's the star for? And so, you know, people had wondered for centuries since this animal was first described, you know, what's the star for? What the heck is this thing for? How could it evolve? What ability might it give the star-nosed mole? And so I got an early start looking at that as an undergraduate. And the question at the time was, could it be used to detect electric fields? And this was a theory that one of your advisors was really interested in exploring. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it's a great hypothesis. And that's, of course, where we all start. Um, there are a number of other very interesting animals, like, for example, the duckbill platypus, that can, in fact, detect electric fields with sensors on their nose. And more commonly, it's found in fish. Uh, and which brings up an interesting point, because the star-nosed mole is semi-aquatic, and it often will die for food and it lives in wetlands. So it all made sense. But, you know, what makes sense to us doesn't always make sense to the animals. And it turned out that just couldn't really get a reaction to electric fields. And so that was also an early lesson in science. Things don't always work out. That's very common. And it's not always easy to answer those questions, even if they do seem to make sense. How was that question ultimately answered? Well, it was sort of a process of elimination. And, you know, I'll sort of add in there, even though it didn't work out at that point, it was a good process for me because it got me really well educated and interested in the sense of electroreception. And so I actually went to graduate school thinking, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to focus on. So I went to University of California to work with the experts in the area of electroreception. But I was still totally obsessed with the star-nosed mole, partly because it was, you know, having my own question at that early time. And so eventually we turned back to this and I convinced my advisor that this would be fun to look at. And it turned out that the star-nosed mole has about the best sense of touch of any animal on the planet. Like, put that into context. Okay, so... 
we think of our own hands, rightfully so, as incredibly important and high acuity touch sensors. They are. And, you know, we use them to make tools and use computers and iPhones. And it's sort of a lot of the basis of human evolution in one sense. We have about 17,000 touch sensitive nerve fibers in our hands. The star-nosed mole has 100,000 in its star, and the star is only the size of your fingertip. So imagine having five times more sensitivity and acuity of your entire hand packed into one fingertip. But having it on your nose. Yeah, but having it on your nose, right. Yeah. Um, And it gets better than that because they actually use their star like an eye in the sense that there's one spot in the middle that is super high resolution and the side parts are lower resolution. Mm. And that's the way our eyes work. It's sort of an example of biology sort of homing in on a convergent design of how to evolve a high resolution sensory system, either whether it's touch or vision, it makes sense to make one part super high resolution and move that around because it conserves brain territory and just makes the whole system sort of less expensive to build and to process the sensory inputs. Well, and and shrews actually do this with their whiskers too, right? They have they have the ability to process quickly process information similar to how we would process visual information. In a sense, but it seems to be more distributed in the shrews, meaning that it's mm. it's a little bit more like our fingertips, where there's not just one place that is sort of the the whisker central place, and and they get a little bit of more of a broader tactile view of things when they touch things with the whiskers. But they are, shrews are incredibly fast and more efficient than people give them credit for. And the strange side of that, I think, is partly because they have small brains. And small brains have short connections, very efficient small modules for processing things. And so they actually probably get a benefit from having a super sort of honed down, very efficient nervous system compared to us. We can do a lot of complicated things, but we can't do it as fast as these little guys. This is a truly fantastic drawing in your book of animals whose body parts are drawn correspondingly large to the rest of their bodies based on how much space those parts take up in the sensory regions of their brains. And so you you, you mentioned the platypus. That's one of the creatures on there in this drawing, a really cartoonishly big bill and a raccoon with huge hands and a naked mole rat with these gigantic teeth, which are, you know, much bigger than a naked mole rat's normal gigantic teeth. I'm wondering, have you ever thought about what we would look like drawn in that way? Oh, yeah. And actually, a number of people have have done those studies. And we have huge hands, you might guess, big (laughs) fingertips, big thumb. Our lips are also really big. Apparently, processing and sensing food is really important. So those are sort of the, the really important touch sensors for humans are the face and the hands. There's a photo in your book of New York Aquarium curator Chris Coates holding an electric eel. And this thing is, it's like the size of an anaconda and he's just cradling it like a baby. You, yeah. <laughs> you love this photo. Oh, I love that photo. I do. I mean, you know, you can tell that he's kind of in love with the electric eel, so to speak. <laughs> and yet at the same time, that old black and white photo is the one I was showing in class that I decided, you know, that image is just too old. I've got to get some better photography. And so that 
is what I set out to do is because I love to do photography. I love to really try to show that these animals that might seem so strange and even kind of otherworldly to people. I'm, I'm not using the word ugly. I refuse. <laughs> I actually think they have a lot of beauty in their strangeness and electric eels are certainly one of those. So I got a lot of wonderful pictures of these guys and I got some great video and then I put them under the slow motion camera and that's when I realized that there was an amazing sort of mine of things to discover just from their behavior. But in order to get some of these pictures, some of these videos, you set up an experiment where you let yourself get zapped by these guys. Well, I will say that was one of the last things that I did with electric eels. And I wasn't ever really planning to do that, but I ended up with a question that could only be answered by doing that. And I will say, you know, if there's anybody who thinks about the physics of electric circuits, they would recognize the problem that I ran into. And I'll just briefly say, I was trying to work out the circuit that develops when an electric eel leaps out of the water to shock a potential predator, which in and of itself, that sentence is already kind of very <laughs> amazing right. that, that they do that at all. But once I started investigating that, I realized to solve the circuit problem, there were two resistors in parallel. And two resistors in parallel is basically your physics 101 circuit problem that students have to solve. And you really need to know the value of both of the resistors in order to know how much current is flowing. So long story short, my arm was one of the two resistors that I needed to know the value of the resistance in order to finally get the total current that would be generated by one of these eels. And so, yeah, I took one for the team. Um, <laughs> but I should say it was a small electric eel, so it was not a dangerous thing for me to do. It, was, it wasn't the most comfortable thing I've ever done, but it wasn't particularly dangerous. So as I was reading this part of the book, I was you know trying to work out like how how you would do this, if not the way you did it. And I'm not good enough with electrical circuits to do it. But I got to figure that since that time, somebody must have come along and said, Ken, why didn't you just do X? It's funny you say that because I've been waiting to, um, <laughs> I've been waiting to hear somebody say, hey, you idiot, you should have just, uh, you know, done X or plugged in equation Y and you wouldn't have needed to do that. But, you know, physics is pretty lawful. That's one of the things that I was taught by electric eels, actually. I kind of fell in love with physics while working with electric eels because the electricity and the dynamics of what they do with it is just like a battery. I mean, you look at this electric eel and you think, there's no way it's going to behave just like a battery, but it really does. And so that was a lot of fun for me because animal behavior studies are often really chaotic. And then you sort of enter the realm of physics and you get very lawful, beautiful data Anyway, so it was it was a lot of fun to enter that realm for a while. Let's talk about worm grunting. Sure. I <laughs> never heard of this before. We're not talking about the sounds that worms make. Describe what worm grunting is. Worm grunting is this kind of amazing and legendary bait collecting technique that is done in the southeastern United States. And so there are professional worm grunters. There are not so many anymore, but there used to be a lot of them. And they make their living by collecting 
thousands, I would say tens of thousands of earthworms. And they do it by pounding a stake into the ground and then rubbing the top of the stake with a piece of wood. That's the most common technique. And in response, hundreds and hundreds of big earthworms come out of the ground. So for a person that loves biological mysteries, I just could not resist this. You know, why would earthworms do such a thing? And there's a little more to the story that got me obsessed with this. The Darwin had actually proposed all the way back in the 1800s that worms come to the surface when they sense the vibration of a digging mole. So I here I had this sort of link to Darwin and this bizarre bait collecting technique that was a mystery, and I just had to know more. So it turns out that this behavior does appear to come as an evolutionary adaptation to avoiding moles, which are a worm predator. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. So bats that echolocate are eating huge numbers of moths and moths have learned to listen for bats and they take these drastic evasive maneuvers. So there's a whole cool arms race story about the senses of moths and bats and how they've co-evolved. Apparently, at least in the southeastern United States, the same thing has gone on with moles and earthworms. It's just that it's happening underground. So it's much harder to sort of get an intuitive feel for this. But by conducting experiments and seeing how the earthworms react to moles and how they react to vibrations and how they don't react to rainfall, a lot of different clues and evidence came together to essentially solve that mystery. And I guess one of the things I'd say about that study, it's probably one of the only times that I've gone in with an idea that I had that I thought was the answer that turned out to be true. Usually the animals totally dumbfound me and surprise me. What is the most surprising answer that you've ever gotten? Or, or maybe let me turn that around in the other direction. What's the wrongest you were ever with your initial guess? Why? Let's see. You know why that's hard to answer? I try not to guess very much. I mean, in the case of the worm grunting, that was sort of laid out as probably, you know, based on Darwin's ideas. But when I look at an animal and start out my studies, I try very hard to not have any preconceptions. And I partly got taught that by star-nosed moles. I spent a lot of time trying to see if they would respond to electric fields. And I think that was a distraction to learning about what they actually are doing. And I've really took that lesson from the moles to heart. And I think it's an important part of the way that I approach any problem, just not sticking to a preconceived so-called hypothesis and imagining just testing that, but maybe just sort of sitting back and letting the animals tell me what's important to them. We lose a lot when we're hyper-focused, right? I'm sure you know about the gorilla test, right? Where test subjects are asked to watch a video where people are passing um, around yes. a basketball and then a gorilla comes into the scene, beats his chest and walks out. And most of the people who were focused on just watching the number of times the basketball is being passed around completely miss it. But this happens in science too. That's a great analogy. I love that because I have seen that video and it is amazing to see what you miss when you're concentrating on something else. I'll have to use that because I do think that's exactly what can happen in some studies if you're not keeping an open mind and just 
sort of looking without too many preconceptions at the data, letting the data tell you what's going on. And the electric eels are, I mean, I guess I could say stunning (laughs) in terms of the amount of things that they can do that absolutely blew me away. We tend to think of ourselves as these incredibly highly evolved beings. When you spend time with organisms that have a completely different way of sensing the world around them, that go about the business of survival in such different ways than we do, puts things into perspective, yeah? It really does. You know, it almost keeps me up at night in a really good way to just imagine all the things that we have yet to discover. Because I kind of went into research you know, with starting with Starnos Moles, thinking, well, these extremes and outliers are going to be the most amazing things. And, and they are. But I also learned that the seemingly primitive, normal, common animals are almost always just as amazing when you look close. So that's something I learned over the years. And that the first guess about what might be interesting about an animal is probably not going to be it. So you've looked at moles, you've looked at shrews, bats, snakes, eels, axolotls. What's the thing you want to look at next? This might creep some people out, but I am still pursuing the sort of back and forth arms race, so to speak, or the battle between the emerald jewel wasp and the American cockroach. You know, the jewel wasp essentially makes a zombie out of the cockroach. And it's straight out of Edgar Allan Poe and throw in some Bram Stoker. And, and, and essentially, you know, that's also one of these areas where there are surprising new things to find. So I'm not going to tip my hand yet, but I'm still on the trail with those guys. And there's more to learn. A lot of people who get into these sorts of questions wind up, you know, in the fields of of applied biotechnology. That hasn't been the focus of your research, but I got to figure you can't help but wonder about what we can take from what we've learned from all of these different magnificent creatures and how we can apply that to solving our own problems. One of the tendrils and facets of the research that I really didn't talk about in the book is, for example, Starnos moles have a huge number of the channels that determine how currents are produced by nerves in relation to touch. And that's one of these mysteries that's still being worked out by molecular biologists. And the Starnos moles have been an important model system for exploring that aspect because they have so many of these channels. That's one example. And there are others. The electric eels have been inspiring a new biomimetic battery. Um, So there are always those things. But, you know, I would say that certainly for the book, my focus was more on the amazing and incredible side of what's in our biological universe rather than trying to focus on what's in it for us. And what I think is in it for us is being amazed by what's around us, sort of like you are with the Hubble Space Telescope. In the book, you reflect on the words of theoretical physicist Richard Feynman, who noted that scientific study only adds to the excitement and the mystery of natural encounters. And that's been your experience. Absolutely. And that's why I wrote the book, because 
I feel like I journeyed to some far off land where there's incredible things happening. And I wanted to, I wanted to come back and tell people about it. When I say these animals are amazing, that really comes from the heart. And actually that reminds me, I put in QR codes into the book so that people can see just by aiming the camera of their phone at these things, they can see the movies of the animals in action because I just felt they were too amazing not to give people that opportunity. When you're putting this book together, you decided you wanted this book to be for everyone. What compelled you to do that? I think I've always thought that way. You know, I just, I got drawn into this research, not because I thought about the future and thought someday I want to be a professor. I got drawn into it because I thought these animals are incredible and I, and I want to know more. So I think that's just sort of stuck with me. And I just, you know, I don't like the titles or the sometimes the feeling of distance that people might have from scientists. I certainly don't feel that uh, I would ever want it to be treated that way, like that I was anybody, but just, you know, someone really curious about the world around me. Your journey into the lives of animals that sense the world in very different ways started with a book when you were a kid. It must have dawned on you that somebody else's journey might start with your book. I think that would be wonderful. I mean, that's the highest praise you could give. That's King Catania. He's a professor of biology at Vanderbilt University and the author of Great Adaptations, Star-Nosed Moles, Electric Eels, and other tales of evolution's mysteries solved. And as we like to say, you can buy the book anywhere, but please do strive to support a local bookstore. King Catania, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.